Welcome to Turning Earth on Dublin Digital Radio. If you're listening for the first time, Turning Earth is a podcast which covers grassroots politics in Ireland, focusing on movements that centre human beings, our communities and the ecosystems we inhabit. And in this episode, you're going to hear a conversation with Dr. Fia Tuberty, who is a member of CATU, the Community Action Tenants Union, and my union, and who is also involved with the grassroots organisation Trans Harm Reduction, which aims to revolutionise trans healthcare in Ireland. She recently has been campaigning as well as part of Dublin for Gaza, who are one of the many groups that have formed in response to the ongoing attempted genocide by Israel of the Palestinian people. So the conversation covers a lot of ground, but in the end I think it all ties together pretty well as Fia describes the common foundational problems which causes all of those issues. Spoiler alert, it's the capitalist economic system. Before we get started with the episode proper, I need to first pass the hat around. This podcast takes a fair bit of time to produce and at the moment, it's something I do in my spare time. I want to turn it into a financially sustainable media project and put more podcasts out, more content covering current events in Ireland, political education, philosophical chinwaggery and so on. But right now I'm limited by time. So if you'd like to hear more interviews like the one you're about to hear and more in-depth audio documentaries, then you can play a role in making that happen. If you can afford it, please go to patreon.com forward slash turning earth and subscribe. There's a few different options there for subscribing depending on your means, ranging from €2 to €14 a month. If you can't afford to subscribe, you can still help by feeding the all-powerful and ever-hungry algorithm. So on whatever podcast app you use, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict or anything else, please subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. That helps spread the podcast to other people's feeds and it gets more people listening to it. You can also find it on Instagram and Twitter, so give us a follow there. Go to linktree.com forward slash turning earth to find all those links. It's been a mad couple of weeks in Ireland, particularly in Dublin. The city saw rioting like hasn't been seen before in my lifetime. Two or three buses were burnt out, lads went joyriding in the number 13, the loose was set on fire, loads of shops in O'Connell Street were looted. The riots were started by far-right agitators and organisers in response to the stabbing of a woman and two young kids outside of a school in the inner city. The man who stabbed the kids was clearly not right in the head, but he was from a migrant background. He came here 20 years ago. So as soon as that fact emerged, it all escalated very quickly. Although the riot was started by racist mouthpieces, it very quickly developed into a general anti-Garda riot and there was a lot of just opportunistic looting. So it'd be incorrect, I think, to identify every participant as a racist or fascist and to see it as a demonstration of the mass power of the right. I don't think there's yet that many people who subscribe to that ideology, that racist, reactionary ideology. But it would be a huge mistake to ignore or downplay what caused the rioting. There's an increasingly well-organised fascist movement in this country, given voice by online talking heads, who talk like they want to challenge power, but in practice are simply protecting the status quo. Now they've had a taste of what they can do, of what they can call up from the belly of the country. A lot of the commentary I've seen is expressing surprise and shock at what happened and I can't really understand that to be honest because tensions in Ireland, particularly in Dublin around migration, are huge and have been huge for the last couple of years and it's, it's obvious to anyone that's paying attention. The anti-migrant protests that started in East Wall late last year and spread around the city should have been the canary in the coal mine. But they were brushed off by many of us as just a few head the balls and as the protests died down, left-wing groups were very quickly to self-congratulate and identify our counter-protests and counter-propaganda as what caused the protest to die off. But the tensions didn't go away, they simply went quiet again and continued to fester. Now, I'm not trying to blame anyone, like I said, I was over-optimistic at the time as well. Um, my partner was not and we argued about it at the time. I, I, had to, I promised that I would acknowledge that. Yes, you were right, I was wrong. The tensions that led to the riot will never go away while the root causes remain, we know that. We know the root causes are housing insecurity, unemployment, poverty, inequality, all the mental health and social problems that go along with those. Migration doesn't cause those problems, but it does sharpen them, so that can't be ignored. 
We need to ask ourselves how is the right able to mobilise people like this and how are they speaking to people that the left are failing to reach. I went to a demo called by ICTU, the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, on Monday, on the Monday following the riots, and it was just so demoralising, honestly. Like all the speechifying and empty platitudes highlighted for me the uselessness of the mainstream workers' movement. There was a lot of talk of being proud of our city, of Cade Mia Lafalcia, but what is there to be proud of in a country with skyrocketing homelessness, a decimated health system, and an upsurge in youth emigration? What does Cade Mia Lafalcia mean? What does it actually mean to a migrant who came here to be exploited by rack renting landlords? or an international protection applicant and asylum seeker who arrives to be told that their only option is to sleep in a tent and to be kicked and spat on by passers-by. So these, these trade union bureaucrats stood on their platform in the middle of O'Connell Street and said that the rioters don't represent Dublin, that this isn't their city, it's ours. Well, they're wrong about that. The riots perfectly represent Dublin, absolutely perfectly. That The riot was every Saturday night of the year condensed into one. All the violence and the pain and the hatred, it all came bubbling up in one moment. Leftist leaders denying reality like that will not prevent things from getting worse, and they are getting worse every day. There's a lot of disenfranchised people here in Ireland who know that the level of change we need can't come from government. They're increasingly being mobilised by the right, who offer up simplistic solutions to complicated problems. And the public response from liberals and many left groups has been basically just to deny reality and to stick to moralistic sloganeering. Now, there are groups out there organising and doing outreach in marginalised communities, working to counter the right on the street, but we need to do a lot more. We need to get active in our unions. We all do. Get active in our unions, whatever organisations we're in, be brave and push the jaded, complacent leadership either out or into meaningful action. The state won't do it for us. The response from the state has been to give more resources to the Gardaí, as though tasers are going to make up for their incompetence. A couple of days ago, I, went, I was down in the shop and every single tabloid, all the red tops, ran a headline that had some variation of a pun on tasers. They were all, f- I, was, I couldn't believe it, like, one of zappy days, uh, guard a shock on you, war on tugs, all this shite, right? The media, as usual, are rowing in behind the state to prepare people to accept increased repression. The PSNI have given two water cannons to the Gardaí, an arrangement no doubt facilitated and made easier by Drew Harris, who's the current guard ahead and former PSNI head. So we don't have an all-Ireland government, but we have an all-Ireland police force. They were caught with their jocks down by the rioting. They couldn't handle it at all. Giving them tasers isn't going to make riots less likely. It's not going to disempower Ireland's burgeoning fascist movement. The only thing that can disempower fascism, whether that's organised street-level fascism or state fascism, the only thing that ever has is a well-organised broad front of left and progressive movements. To tie this back into the upcoming interview, issues around trans healthcare and really just the mere existence of trans people has become a major moral panic and a lot of people have been expressing strong opinions on it without first trying to understand it. Alongside migrants, trans people are one of the groups that the right wish to scapegoat. They identify any gains in rights made by those communities as the root cause of broader issues affecting the whole working class. In reality, the situation for trans people in Ireland is far from secure and you'll hear about that from Fia now uh, and about how trans people are self-organising to protect themselves and secure adequate healthcare for their community. So apologies for the pessimistic opening, but I'm very worried about what's going to happen next. At the same time, I'm confident in the solution. Organise, talk to people. Let's address the problem rather than sweep it back under the rug. I play the interview with Fia now. Just a warning, there is some electronic interference noise on my microphone, but uh, hopefully you'll still be able to hear what's said. Here we go. So I'm uh, Fia Tuberty. I'm... A member of uh, CATU, the Community Action Tenants Union. I'm a member in the Dunleary CATU branch. Uh, I'm very much involved as well in trans harm reduction, which is a grassroots 
trans healthcare group, which supports people who are self-medicating. Um, then connected to that, um, one of the organizers of the Transgress the NGS campaign, which is a kind of coalition of different grassroots trans community groups organizing around the healthcare issue. And then also involved in uh, Palestine Solidarity at the moment through Dublin for Gaza. So we would have met maybe a year ago or less, probably through Catch. I remember Catch as well, um, working on the, the NATO research project, National Association of Tenants Organizations, and the Rent Strike documentary, which was great crack, some of my favorite things I've ever worked on. Um, but maybe we'll try and talk a bit about that later if we have time. But to begin with, like, there, there was two, two different occupations with regards to those campaigns you mentioned. There was an occupation of the Department of Health, I think that's the name of the department, but you know, the one relating to health, whatever it's called, and the Department of Transport. Um, so can you talk about about that? Well, it was the Department of Transport, wasn't it? The Dublin for Gaz occupation, or no? Uh, it was the Department of Foreign Affairs. Sorry. There was both. There was Transport and Foreign Affairs. Right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, could you tell us a bit about th those occupations, how they went, and I guess what uh, within that, what are the the aims of Dublin for Gaza? Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah. So there were two occupations recently of government departments through Dublin for Gaza. So as you said, uh, Department of Transport first, and then Department of Foreign Affairs. And both of those related to uh, the Irish government's role in facilitating weapons transport through Shannon, um, to including to Israel, to uh, allowing the US military to use Shannon um, and potentially other airports, because it's been highlighted that it happens through Belfast or can happen through Belfast as well. Um, but uh, obviously due to the the kind of current situation in Gaza, we're particularly concerned that there's no weapons going to facilitate or commit genocide in Gaza. Um, so we started a campaign through Dublin for Gaza, um, trying to put pressure on the government to stop that happening, obviously, to, to carry out, at the very least, to carry out inspections of all US military uh, travel through Shannon to check that there's no weapons going through uh, going to Israel because currently like they're totally refused to do any form of inspections um, and just grant like exemptions. Yeah and there's like a series of different government departments involved in this including Department of Transport where it's Jack Chambers apparently is like most directly responsible for granting these exemptions um, then also Department of Foreign Affairs and the Department of Defence has some role in it as well but it's quite like diffuse and it's even hard to pin down kind of responsibility which is intentional um, and then as well yes the other <laughs> occupation um, recently was in the Department of Health uh, and that was part of the Transgress the NGS campaign so that was um, basically trying to pretty basic demands around trying to have a meeting with the minister or someone from the minister's office around these issues we're raising about how um, the National Gender Service the NGS uh, interferes with people's access to GPs or to, to care through GPs. Um, so yeah, there's a whole series like, and I think that um, similar tactics, the the use of these occupations as a tactic is itself interesting. Like builds on kind of how these have been used with by the housing movement with Katu. There was an occupation in the Department of Housing earlier this year. Um, they've got like a longer history than that. But that attests to like kind of uh, maybe unfortunately small group of activists been involved in like a lot of these actions. Before we move on to the NGS stuff, could you talk a bit more about uh, Dublin for Gaza? So like when you say there's no 
there's no oversight is there just there, there's no like what kind of information would you know do we have about what's coming through shannon do we have like do we know anything at all about it or is it all really murky it is very murky uh certainly for us who've just got engaged in this recently due to the link to palestine it's very hard to understand there's other groups which have been at it for years like shannon watch trying to keep track and like understand and doing like great work trying to um keep track of what's happening and we'd love to are trying to like link in with those groups as well so we're not just trying to have, you know duplicating work but yeah yeah the thing is that like these exemptions are granted so there's no inspections of what's passing through shannon so the government can be like uh oh there's no evidence that anything is going to israel um but that's purely because there's no inspections happening and how, how did the occupations go how were they received in the moment and like has it felt like there's any there's been any response to them from from the government i think they're quite like tricky things in some ways there's a dynamic of like it's hard to know what we can do kind of safely to an extent or kind of um you know in a sense the guard the reaction at the security reaction is kind of to like let them tire themselves out sometimes um so if they, they they may turn up but they often turn up like fairly soon have a look at what's going on and then if you're not being too disruptive then uh they sometimes kind of let you at it and have that attitude of like let them tire themselves out on the other hand if we do try to be more disruptive then the guy the reaction is pretty heavy-handed and is immediately like these are all getting arrested or get out immediately so it's kind of hard to get that balance i think it requires like quite a lot of careful planning and kind of insider knowledge in some ways to do like a very effective occupation like knowing how we might be able to disrupt operations say for instance like shut down a building for the day um by trying to encourage workers not to go to work and that sort of thing um but that requires kind of like knowing how the workplace operates or how the building works and that kind of thing it's kind of it can be hard to know in advance so yeah i i think they have been effective like i think they've got media attention for instance for mm. the issue like has all helped to not let the like ongoing absolutely horrific genocide in gaza just kind of get ignored which you know at the outset in ireland the government was trying to do was trying to was just unambiguously taking the side of israel and like we've seen that shift as it's been apparent that public opinion's not on the on that side um so it's part of that it's I think that's the encouraging bit is like seeing it as part of this like overall movement um mm. even if these actions individually it's hard to pin down like exact successes um they are part of this like global social movement at this point um which is ongoing i think yeah that's that, that's been the main thing that stuck out to me over the last while as i get is a lot, a lot of governments are vacillating or playing it safe but it's just very clear when you look at what's happening in the streets that the vast majority of people all over the world i'd say but especially in, in 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 Ireland, maybe or more kind of Muslim or Arab majority countries, like there's just huge numbers of people, even if their governments might be trying to play it safe. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very clear that that is starting to shift the shift mm -hmm. the story. And I think that's as fucking tragic and all as it is. I think there's 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 some causes for optimism there that things might change eventually. You know, mm -hmm. um, and definitely yeah, keeping the pressure up with stuff like that. You might not be able to see A B C. There's an effect there, but mm -hmm. for sure it's part of the bigger picture. Um, before we move on from that, uh, what? So it seems like Dublin for Gaza is kind of more direct action, or like yeah, just like taking the fight to them directly kind of a group. Is there any uh, 
is that kind of going to be the main focus of for the next while or are there other other uh, kind of campaigns you have ongoing and uh, as well maybe you could say how people could get involved with them when they get stuck in yeah um yeah i mean i think like kind of understandably in response to like how horrific and dramatic the situation is there has been an interest in like taking more direct forms of action um and really trying to make sure our demands can't be ignored uh, and that's kind of the idea behind Dublin for Gaza. Um, and the main kind of campaigns or things we'd be focused on at the moment uh, would be around the weapons issue. Um, because, yeah, there's various reasons to that, but it's kind of like, because it ties into a whole like series of links between Ireland and US and kind of its Ireland's position within an imperialist kind of system or whatever, um, which is very important in and of itself, as well as due to its connection to the genocide in Gaza. Um, and then the other thing we'd really like to see happening would be a development of like, I guess, a spreading of like direct action through other groups in Ireland, particularly like through BDS related actions like kind of deshelving goods that come from uh that have links to israel or that are that the bds international bds movement is asking for people to tackle like there's there are kind of like accessible low risk actions that kind of people can take in their own communities easily by going into their local shops and putting stickers on things or just complaining to management about like why are you selling Israeli baby wipes is a massive one and um, that little stocks um, Israeli baby wipes like you know people can go and like make a fuss about that and we'd really like to be able to kind of share resources and maybe build people's confidence a bit to take those kinds of actions that might feel a bit scary but like maybe if you have a bit of support with doing them then that can be something that we all kind of like learn to do together a bit more yeah that makes sense yeah a lot of time people just need to be given permission to do it. Yeah, you know, they might want to, but they just they need that little push. Mm -hmm. Um, since you were talking about BDS, it reminds me. I know there was an occupation there the other night in Trinity College. The BDS site there and the student union occupied the building. They stayed overnight, as far as I'm aware. I'm not sure how that's going on now, but there's loads of stuff like that going mm -hmm. on. So yeah, is there is there a way people can get in touch with Dublin for Gaza? Is there an Instagram or an email or something? Yeah, there's just the Instagram. If you message into the Instagram, we'd love to have people involved. Um, we're going to try and be better in the next little while about doing more outreach and recruitment and stuff. Because um, I think it's really important now with like, even like there is a risk that people react to this like immediate, really pressing situation. But then as it like drops off the agenda, there's a bit of people get distracted or, you know, attention caught by things like the riots in Dublin, understandably. Um, but yeah, we need to like continue building and getting more people involved and that kind of stuff. The media will drop the story eventually. Like, I mean, nobody talks about Ukraine anymore, but that, mm -hmm. that war is still as, as violent and active as it was uh, a year and a half ago. Um, so it's important yeah, that we keep that, keep that pressure up and keep it in people's minds. Um, I'll share a link to that in the, in the podcast description as well, the, the, the link to Dublin for Gaza. So then the other occupation we're talking about, the Department of Health, as part of the Transgress, the NGS campaign. Before we get into that, could you maybe describe for people what the... The National Gender Service is? Uh, yeah, so the National Gender Service is kind of the only uh, public service, like gender clinic or service that deals with like healthcare, providing healthcare with trans people or for trans people. Um, it's 
based in Lachlan's Hen Hospital in Dunleary, near to where I live actually. Um, and there's a whole rake of issues with it. Like it would take a very long time to kind of detail the, the extent, but like one, one of the headline things that people talk about is how like the waiting list to get access to this deeply flawed system, like this really awful system is now pushing 10 years, if not longer, when you get from first referral to get an appointment, even to get a first appointment. So that's like, you know, it's very obviously not functional system in so any meaningful way. Yeah, exactly. It's not, it doesn't really exist as a public service. And as well as that, like it operates on a just really outdated um, kind of psychiatric model where you have to go through these like really demeaning, uh, humiliating kind of psychiatric assessments. Like, I guess is what they call like a clinic operates on like the gender clinic system. So this is kind of like a system of dealing with trans people. Um, that emerged in say the 50s and 60s in the US and UK to a lesser extent. And it's basically works on the premise that like, okay, we have to cope in some way with this phenomenon of people who are like gender deviants in some sense. But if they're going to insist on kind of existing, <laughs> if they won't just like disappear, then we're gonna manage them and kind of rigidly segregate them into like, okay, you're, different categories and say you're okay you're dement you're deluded you're just wrong and you don't get access to any healthcare or other people you're like okay you fit my own stereotype of what a woman or a man is mm. and therefore you take the box and you get access to healthcare so it's based on this like really rigid binary model of gender um, and putting people into like boxes um and that's how this whole like psychiatric assessment stuff works. Um, that you know, if you convince them that you fit this like really bizarre kind of stereotype of the perfect <laughs> transsexual, then you'll get access to the healthcare. To healthcare, um, and that's linked to the fact that it takes so long to do assessments because you have to go through at least three hours and hour long psychiatric assessments before you get access to any form of healthcare. And obviously that takes a very long time to process anyone. Um, and that's how they end up, partly how they end up with such long waiting lists. But um, yeah, and, and I guess this is partly, you know, connected to the, this is where the transgress campaign comes from as well, because like the idea is that they, they gatekeep healthcare in the sense that they control who gets access to trans healthcare, in, particularly in the form of hormone therapy. Um, and related to that, they have a practice of interfering with trans people's ability to access care through their GP. Um, so, you know, due to the limits of the National Gender Service, um, the many, many, many limits of the flaws in the National Gender Service, people try to people access healthcare through other means, um, through either like private healthcare providers, um, which there are a few of, or else through self-medicating. Um, and in those cases, people will still need to get healthcare through their GPs, um, particularly get blood tests, or sometimes they can ask, you can try and ask your GP like to prescribe hormone therapy directly, which is something they're entirely capable of doing and uh, legally entitled to do. Um, they do for men with low testosterone all the time. Like if a man goes in and says, I'm a bit tired, they get, <laughs> like, <laughs> they get like 
prescribe testosterone in a second because like the idea of like men losing their kind of fertility and virility is such a huge threat to like the social order um or also like women could get access to hrt for menopause um so uh it's very common that gps prescribe hrt but sorry i've been a bit long-winded but basically if the ngs gets wind of gps providing blood tests or prescribing HRT to trans people outside their framework, they have a policy of like writing to and trying to intimidate and pressure GPs into not providing uh, any of those services. Um, so that's like just a trans person just going to their GP, just being like, I need the basic healthcare. And then someone else steps in and is like, no, don't give it to them. Um, so GPs will often like initially say, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Like I do blood tests all the time. I'll do blood, of course I'll do blood tests for you. And then they'll come back to someone a few weeks later and been like sorry we got this letter which seems to be authoritative you know oh it comes from the national gender service that sounds like they know what they're talking about um so we can't do anything you're just yeah, left yeah. without any form of healthcare. um do, do they have any actual power to, to like can they impact the gps at all or is it just like that that notion of authority that they have over them yeah it's primarily that notion of authority yeah. um yeah yeah like there's no legal impediment or like gps are, are well i guess the issue would be like there aren't you know alternative sources of resources or information that gps can turn to like it's not you know provided by other uh medical authorities the irish medical council or uh, department of health which is partly why we're doing these trying to put pressure on the department of health doesn't say like doesn't provide contrary information saying yes you should do this thing or yes you're totally empowered to do this thing so for that reason they tend to like defer to medical authority um yeah and deny people care so that's kind of how our campaign or what our campaign is about so then what's the the, the long-term vision that the campaign would have what's the how should access to that Kind of healthcare be regulated like what is it or what kind of there's, there's loads of hoops there people need to jump through what what should the process look like like, like ideally yeah 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 no it's a good question uh like i mean in the short term i guess we would see we want to like undermine the power of the national gender service to to uh to stop people getting healthcare through their gp and we see that as like kind of it's a kind of like non-reformist reform if you want to use that terminology that like while on the surface like it does seem like it is basic and obvious but on the other hand like it would be quite transform transformative if people can just go to their gp and be like look i want to be prescribed hrt like that'd be a total change in the trans healthcare system and that would be much more along the lines of like what exists in some other countries which is like and what they call like an informed consent model where you just go into a primary care provider whether a gp or like a you know medical center and they say um here is uh you know do an outline of like this is what the physical effects are of taking hormone therapy versus um yeah are you happy with that and then you're like yeah yeah fine <laughs> um so that's like uh one aspect to it like we see that even in like even if you introduce that in ireland say access to trans healthcare through gps there would be a lot of issues with that because it costs people a lot to go to a gp for instance or it's hard to get 
signed up to a GP. Um, and even in other countries where there's like better systems of trans healthcare, these aren't perfect by any means. Um, and like what, uh, and, and related to that, like people continue to self-medicate in lots of situations, lots of circumstances. So like accessing HRT without uh, oversight from a medical professional because people find it like more empowering, they have more control over their own healthcare um, or else because there's still limits in, in the existing trans healthcare system despite there being some reforms. Um, so that's part of our campaign as well, is like of resources to support people who continue to self-medicate for whatever reason. Yeah, when you talk talk about like how people can access hormones or different things, it just makes makes it really plain mm. how commonsensical it is that people can just go should mm -hmm. just be able to go to the GP for. Mm -hmm. I mean, technically can it sounds like. Um, so then, what the, what would the campaign's orientation towards the NGSB then? Is it a case that, like is it something that can be reformed or is it just something that shouldn't? needs to be abolished and started again or what, what what do you think i mean in the short term obviously we want to like uh end its ability to interfere with uh with care via gps but like that is a kind of entry point or initial stage in get, hopefully getting rid of the whole thing like it's a it's an awful the whole clinic premise is based as i was saying around like controlling and gate, gatekeeping access to trans health care um so yeah, it should definitely be abolished and healthcare should work on a totally different um, basis, basis of like self-determination and autonomy and um, yeah, people's people's freedom to like, people's bodily autonomy and right to do what they want with their bodies. So I want to move on next to the, the kind of long-term organization, trans harm reduction. Mm -hmm. um, First question I have on my list is why is there a need for a grassroots trans health organization? But you find already <laughs> a pretty detailed way I outlined the reasons for that. But is there anything else you could add maybe for like other than to do with the NGS? Are there other issues around around healthcare that that, that trans harm reduction looks to address? Yeah, I mean, no, there's there are definitely other aspects to that. Like so firstly, there's the case that like um there's not like we've done, I think we've done really great work, not to congratulate myself too much, but like bringing together this coalition in Transgress the NGS of like different small grassroots uh, trans community groups. But um, like the necessity for that is linked to the fact that like any of the like liberal NGOs are totally useless on this question. Um, so particularly in relation to like self-medicating, which mm. is what trans harm reduction focuses on like they won't touch that question because they see it as too um, politically explosive I mm. suppose um, and that they would open themselves up to looking irresponsible or to criticism like as if they're not getting criticized fucking criticized left right and center already um, but yeah so as like obviously uh, trans healthcare has become the center of this like huge moral panic and is also really central within the rise of the far right now in Ireland. Um, and as it's become more controversial, any of the like liberal NGOs have basically gotten really frightened and won't deal with it anymore. Also, like most of them take state funding as well. Um, so they're just not gonna take the forms of like radical action which are needed to bring about change on any of these questions. And then the last thing, I guess, related to the need for the organization for trans harm reduction 
is that it deals specifically with the question of like self-medicating and specifically supports people who are self-medicating and um, you know accessing healthcare without uh, supervision or approval from like a medical professional um, and that is a real gap like there's there's very there's some equivalents in other countries but certainly not within Ireland and even internationally like it's quite rare um, so it's filling like a really important gap there. Yeah, yeah. And what, what, so one of the like kind of long term campaigns you have is um, is it's to do with the GP thing, trying to get let let GPs know that they can help people out. Is that like how how does that how does that work out in in practice? Do you like directly contact GPs and kind of inform them on this stuff, or what way does it play out normally? Um, I guess the main way that operates is that we're affiliated to the Transgress the NGS campaign, um, along with other grassroots groups. So we contribute to and support those actions um, and then also the other thing that we do is like we maintain a list of GPs who uh, will support will provide healthcare to trans people like either ones who have not yet got come up on the NGS's radar and they haven't contact they haven't been contacted or else ones who feel confident enough that they can just ignore that which is the case in, which is the case in some cases. Um, so we can direct people to go to those GPs when they come to us and ask for recommendations, which is like, God, the amount of emails we get about that is mad. Yeah. Do you know the way? Like it's, it's really sad. Um, from people having ways. issues with their GPs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like, I don't know, probably three or four emails per week. People just like looking for a GP who will provide them with basic healthcare, do you know, um, and are not confident that if they go to a GP they select at random that they will get that or else have actually had ne negative experiences where they've been turned away. Um, so yeah, uh, that's one of the one of the things that we do. That's a very tough thing in general that I mean if, if like just trying to find a GP at all but especially if you're on a medical card trying to find mm -hmm. one that's not already full mm -hmm. that's not, still taking patients it's a, it's a nightmare situation and with that extra added dimension of the, maybe the GP just won't know that they can do it or be willing to. Mm -hmm. Have you had much like like in terms of trying to convince GPs that they're allowed to do it and that they're not in danger? Is that like something you've tried to do or is it, has it had any, is like how do people react to that or how do GPs react to that in general? Are they, is, is the fear of it too strong or does it, does it, can you kind of win people over? Um, that is not something that we've really focused on mm. which I think it's definitely in my mind is something that we could look into more like from what I've heard that's been the case in some international with some kind of similar groups internationally they focus more on that whereas we've obviously focused on like trying to take on the state directly and force them to force the structure to change obviously so that they won't interfere with um they they will provide advice to gp saying you should and can do this and mm. um, so we haven't adopted that approach on a kind of systematic basis but i think it's definitely be worth doing if we can have the time and resources and all. And what what other kind of ongoing projects does Trying Harm Reduction do? I know there's stuff to do with testing and like the testing for safety and that. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's one aspect. So that's uh, we run a lab testing program of like sources of HRT that are commonly used by people who are self medicating, um, and we work with a private lab to get those tested for like you know whether the advertised concentration of whether testosterone or estrogen 
is as is correct um, or also whether there's any like forms like contamination or whatever so it's similar to the harm reduction kind of drug testing people would do for like recreational um drugs um, like it relates to the fact that the types of HRT that people are self-medicating use are not like produced by pharmaceutical companies you know they're produced by small-scale black market operators um, so there's often a fear on the part of people who are thinking about like who may not have any other access to healthcare but they're afraid of self-medicating because there's this sense that like oh we can't rely on um, what you buy online from some small-scale producer in Brazil or whatever um, like we always really preface results that we put out with the idea that this isn't like you know statistically valid testing it's only like a very small number of samples or whatever but on the other hand what it has shown is that overwhelmingly these things are safe right um there aren't there isn't kind of like huge amounts of contamination there isn't um, massive variations in like the advertised concentration versus um what's actually in them uh it's also the first test equivalent testing program in the world um which i mean i'm very proud of uh it's been we've been doing it for a bit over a year at this point um and yeah it's still going and um, hope to continue it we we always are trying to look for like new lab contacts and people to talk to We'd love because the, the lab that we work with is pretty expensive and it's hard to keep fundraising enough to cover the cost um so i'd love to try and make contacts with like anyone in a university who has access to a lab or something like that if, yeah, yeah, <laughs> if yeah. anyone's listening is in that situation um please get in touch on that subject if anyone does want to get involved or if someone is struggling with this and wants and needs support what's the best way to contact the organization yeah best way to get in touch for trans harm reduction is by email uh trans harm reduction at protonmail.com is the email address um and you should get a response pretty quick if you don't just send us another email and we'll get back to you yeah, I'll put that in the in the in the summary as well, so people can just copy it. Before we move on from that, is that is that any missed? I mean, the, we do we do lots of other stuff. We organise like uh, or we provide like free safe injecting supplies that we post out to people. because um, again, that's like an issue that people don't know where to get mm. um, supplies. We have a small scale like healthcare fund, which covers costs. Uh, that people encourage to do with self-medicating so can't cover the costs of like getting blood tests or uh, going to see a GP or whatever um, we kind of facilitate or coordinate like a peer support network so if people are um, looking for access to information about self-medicating safely they can get in touch and we can try and put you in touch with someone who might be able to who might who can talk to you about your options or just uh, what can be done um, I may be forgetting something there, but they're the main things. <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot already. Cool, that's great. So yeah, like I was saying at the start, we, we uh, met working on the the uh, rent strike documentary, the documentary about the 1970s rent strike, and that was uh, organised by various tenants organisations coordinated by the National Association of Tenants Organisations. Um, can you talk a bit about what, what NATO was and how did you first take an interest in it. How did you hear about it first? Because I, I had no idea until about a year ago that this thing ever existed. Yeah, so I guess we heard about it because I suppose people who were in CATU, like some of them had kind of general, ha had heard bits, odds and ends um, 
of talk about NATO and these big round strikes. Um, most of them were people who had like family connections, um, family members who'd been, been involved in some form or from areas where it had been very strong, uh, like Finglas in one case. Um, and I guess like thinking about the history of housing movements in Ireland, it's not very well recorded, but a lot of what is talked about or known about are the kind of more um, high profile groups like the Dublin Housing Action Committee, which is around the late 60s, early 70s, and was much more tied into like political party activity. Like it was kind of broadly a front organization for official Sinn Féin and the Communist Party. Um, and that's kind of why it's got more attention in the history books because people writing about the history of republicanism or the history of official Sinn Féin have talked about that like in the Lost Revolution for instance they talk about it a bit um, but then these kind of more autonomous less kind of capital P political uh, tenants movements have gotten less attention um, but I think coming from Cathy's perspective which is in kind of which sees itself as trying to do kind of grassroots community organizing as not being uh, aligned with political parties or uh, kind of op trying to operate on like a different model. We were very interested in this previous example of kind of like mass organization, very much grounded in different local communities and um, in the kind of like social base of uh, of the tennis movement and stuff like that uh, and not being led by politicos or kind of party activists and um, so that really appealed to us I guess in like thinking about where we see parallels with between what we're trying to do now and what has happened in the past and um, so yeah I think that's that's really one of the main reasons why I like it kind of captured our imagination to to Look into the history of it. Yeah. And so, what did what did the what form did the, did the research take? I know there was a lot of digging through archives and and one on one interviews. How did the what did you learn the most from? And what what kind of what, what do you think the key lessons are that you've learned from it? If you can if you can distill it down to a few things. Yeah. Um. Like, well, just in terms of the the research and what that looked like, like, yeah, as you say, it was digging around in an awful lot of archives. <laughs> um. So I spent a long time in the National Library. A lot of that was looking through like political party newspapers, um, which got really, really interesting coverage on like kind of how different parties like saw this movement, which was a little bit like separate from their kind of main activities, but also gave like really good analysis of it, like coming from that kind of uh, left perspective. And um, then a lot of archival research in kind of places that you wouldn't expect to find uh like radical history i suppose in a way like um i found like really interesting stuff in like bali mun library and bali firm at local library and um uh Finglas as well just because they're and i think that's really telling because that was like really interesting materials like produced by tenants associations like kind of radical stuff about what they were doing and their model of organizing but it doesn't get seen as part of like the history of the left in Ireland so so it gets kind of like left out in these you know there's not a place 
where tenant movement history has been gathered together just like stuff that I came across kind of by accident or some librarian was like, Jesus, we've got these old magazines here back. <laughs> I've been meaning to throw these out or something like that. And you're just like, oh no, please don't. <laughs> um, and uh, that, and then, sorry, also doing interviews. Yeah, the like one-on-one -on -one interviews. And they were like, just like so interesting in terms of like getting people's firsthand experiences. Um, obviously with the intervening 50 years, meaning that, people don't have perfect memories of it or whatever but um yeah really good to get like uh that, that first-hand perspective like sense of like what it was like of like the social life of these communities and how the rent strike kind of like built on the existing uh relationships people had um, and existing kind of types of organizing that were going on um some of which was like kind of overtly political, some of which was just due to do with kind of like day-to-day -day life and like mutual support and stuff like that. Um, so it was really about how tenant, that those interviews really helped show how the tenant organizing and the rent strike was like kind of interwoven into the everyday life. Um, rather than been seen as like this kind of really radical thing that people are doing and um, yeah, it's kind of like, uh, totally different to what goes on normally in everyday and normal life. Um, just even like small issues like women going out with their kids on the picket lines in the at the rent offices and stuff like that. Like that was, um, it wasn't like you were going to do something really serious. You were just bringing your kids down and you were standing around outside. Although at the same time, like the people were obviously very committed. Um, and felt like they had a responsibility and um yeah we're very serious about it uh, but yeah i think it's hard to pick out like specific like one specific things you'd learn you might learn from it or take from it like i think there's loads of different really interesting bits to it like one of the key ones and most basic ones and i think that i tend to lose track of um because i've been like in kind of stuck in it for so long but it's about like and one thing that people say to me when they hear about it is like that it's just really inspiring that like there has been a previous mass movement around housing and one that was successful which is a key feature of this movement that it succeeded in achieving its kind of stated objectives um and coming from our current situation where like you know the left generally um we're very used to being on the back foot and um, not winning. Uh, so people find it kind of inspiring that like, yeah, we, we can win. And um, through like kind of commitment, through mass organization, mass participation, like it is possible. Uh, and I think it's been very much like, it's an ideological agenda put forward under neoliberalism and more generally which is that like no change is possible right that this is the best of all possible worlds there's no alternative um so kind of like fracturing that or challenging that by being like no we can we can hope for better and we can win it uh we can achieve it by working together is quite powerful um that's one really important thing i think uh another which is maybe like a little bit less optimistic not not that it's pessimistic but it's just not quite clear cut is that like we have to think about the relationship between like uh the 
how people are organized, how people live, and the types of organizing that are possible. So like kind of very distinctive that people lived in like cohesive working class communities um, where like everyone was a council tenant with the same landlord. Um, and therefore it was, and a lot of them had like the sim similar issues, similar grievances when there was a rent increase. For one person, it was, there was a rent increase for everyone. So it was possible to like unite around those shared issues and, and um, yeah, build really uh, big campaigns. Whereas now, obviously that situation has changed partly through like tenant purchase, through sale and pri privatization of public housing that's like fragmented a lot of working class communities then also just the way the rental market operates that like people have to move around a lot it's hard to build roots in your area and um, it's hard to get to know people off like the way the property market is structured in Ireland with uh, small landlords who have like only one or two properties like also fragments people um, as compared to when you've got yeah one landlord um, for for a larger number of people, uh, so you have to take account of those things. Um, but you know, it's just a different context for organising, and it requires like different strategies. It's not to say that it's not possible to do anything. Um, I'd hate people to take that from it, but it just like requires accounting for that and like adapting your model of organising to the situation that we're in. Um, obviously, like in some ways, the small landlords are easier targets. You know, it's easier to win, easier to to get wins if they're someone who has relatively less power and they live fairly close by, for instance, and you can just go to their house. Um, that's easier than taking on a Dublin corporation or the department, the Ministry of Housing or whatever. In some ways, so you know. Um, yeah, and and as well, like the privatization of housing and all that stuff is like just contributed to like immiseration on such a huge scale that obviously there's a lot of like anger that can be channeled and organized and redirected into building kind of powerful housing movements. Um, so it's a different situation, but and we have to account for that, but it doesn't mean that you can't can't do anything. Yeah, yeah. And you're saying that the like the, the protest actions and the direct actions they were taking were kind of a, a natural extension of their of their their daily lives through the tenants unions and uh, like is there I suppose that those structures don't don't really exist today but is that kind of what what Katu is trying to trying to trying to not mimic but to 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 try and have that same function of like giving people a a sense of togetherness even though individually you might have to move a lot. Yeah, no, it is. It, it do, I don't think it does have like exact parallels, but like obviously Katu is organized on the basis of like local branches. And this is in the context of like, yeah, places, uh, renters who may not have like many connections within their local area already. But like by defining an area, we're trying to say like, okay, you're in a branch now with people from your local area are gonna, we, we meet together, we decide collectively like what kind of issues we face um, and try and take action around them. Yeah, I suppose to, to, to move us on, is there like, uh, so the, 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 the rent strike, or the NATO project has had a number of kind of short-term projects within it so far, which have already put out some results. So there's been like a newspaper and a small journal and the documentary. Um, could you talk a bit about them? Where can people 
see the results of it and like kind of learn from it themselves? Yes, yeah, so both of the print publications uh, are available through good bookshops. Um, like you can get them on, you get them online uh, from the Library Project or from Conley Books, or there's a few other shops that also have them that don't have them up online, but have them in stock. Um, Marabone Books and Books at One in the Liberties and yeah, Conley Books Library Project. Red Books in Water Wexford. Say the pamphlet was an attempt to like, you know, try and tell the basic kind of history and um, because it hasn't been told before, but then also like include a lot of the voices of people who who I interviewed um, through quotes. So it's kind of a mix of oral history and then more kind of traditional narrative uh, history with using the kind of like written sources. Um, and then the newspaper was it's called the the New Tenant, and it's based on the newspaper which was published by NATO in the uh, early seventies called The Tenant. So it's got a mix of like housing movement history, stuff about the rent strikes, but then also about Katy's current organising and just analysis of the housing situation and some contributions from like international uh, contributors. There's a really good article by the someone from the LA Tenants Union in there. Uh, rent strike that's been going on there recently um and then yeah documentary which we obviously worked on <laughs> um was is has been produced we're just working on a kind of like distribution plan at the moment so there's not unfortunately i can't say that there's like an easy way for people to see it but um but there will be someday hopefully. there will be yeah 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 and i think like with that the thing that i really liked is that like it it gave it gives viewers like an opportunity to kind of hear directly from the people who were involved, um, which I'd felt like really lucky to be able to meet those people and talk to them through doing the interviews. So it was really nice to like have them on screen and like people watching to hear from them directly. Yeah, no, same as I said to people after working on it, I was like, I'd happily just spend the rest of my life doing that, going around recording, <laughs> recording elders sharing their experience yeah. of political organising class. I think, um, yeah, one of the nicest things about that is like, older people who just like maintain their kind of like radical positions or whatever and um, you know you get this like idea that like oh everyone gets conservative as they get older or whatever and it's just like not necessarily the case some people just like are sound and normal and like <laughs> just are like no this is absolute nonsense yeah, yeah. so yeah if anyone wants to join katu which if you're listening to this i'm assuming you probably have issues with your landlord or issues with housing in general uh so you can go to i think it's katuisland.com or .org i'm not sure but I'll put that in the summary anyway. Um, right, so it's nearly time for us to finish, but um, I normally spring a difficult question on people at the end, but I'm not sure what to ask. I guess is there like, is there anything you can think of any way you can summarise? We just covered loads of different things there, rather than mm. meaning to get you on for a while, so it makes sense to be trying to go forever in one go. But um, I often ask people what they think, because all of these issues, even though we talk about three different different issues there really but they're all tied back to like the, the same lack of democracy and the lack of meaningful free economic freedom that people have because of that lack of democracy and the rest of it like, like thinking big picture is, is what, what do you think is you have nothing to say about like what, what the long-term solutions to all of these problems are in terms mm. of tying it all back together yeah definitely like i think it's um important to try and have like an analysis of like what we're doing in the long term and like try and name the kind of uh, structures that are 
causing all these different problems rather than just like reacting ad hoc to each problem as it kind of comes up. Um, like, I guess what ties the different issues together, like to do with trans healthcare and housing particularly, as well as um, as well as Ireland's kind of complicity in like imperialism and uh, its position as like a neo colony is um, issues to do with like austerity and kind of like the undermining uh, or reduction of like public goods and commonly held goods um, and a kind of like uh, attack on the kind of basic resources that we need to survive. Um, like these are all conflicts in like the sphere of like social reproduction, right? They're kind of like outside traditional like workplace organizing yeah, yeah. Um, and they reflect um, the diminishing resources that we're, we have available to us to kind of like make decent lives. Um, and within like, I know that's very clear in the case of housing and trans healthcare because it's to do with like public services and um, attacks on those things. Um, but that's also connects to Ireland's position in like uh, Ireland's kind of like colonial history under development of like a welfare state um, or kind of dependence, current like continued dependence on uh, foreign direct investment or whatever. And that is very much linked to its complicity in the genocide in Gaza and the government's complicity in the genocide in Gaza. Um, yeah, so there's like intensifying crises as like, basically as like the crisis of capital, crises and contradictions of capitalism like intensify. I think there's like more and more pressure on all of us, like in more and, sorry, I'm not gonna articulate this very well, but like, <laughs> It's like the way I see it in big picture is like there's a kind of like contradictions or like crises of capitalism, right? It's kind of like influential, there's influential theories of like political economy, which are kind of suggest that like there's fewer and fewer um, opportunities for capital to create a profit. Um, and it's investing in these like in and which is like translating into like financialization, different forms of like speculation, um, including particularly in housing, but also generally just this crisis is manifest in like, as I say, attacks on like public goods and our own kind of all of our ability to like live a decent life. I'm trying to paraphrase that just to make sure I've understood you. Do you mean like there's capitalist extraction and accumulation? So like gathering natural resources making them into various commodities to sell on like that's kind of reaching a natural limit because they've already dug into so much of the earth so now now what's happening in order to produce profit they have to bet on things like housing speculation on like the prices of things which is it is just gambling ultimately and that's having the all of these knock-on effects to stuff that are just necessary for humans to keep themselves going capitalism is premised on like endless expansion into like more and more spheres of our lives and as it has to try and find new ways to create generate profit including from traditionally like public goods this is undermining all of our ability to like live decent lives and like with things like climate change capitalism is entering a phase of like struggling to continue generating profit and i think these like contradictions are becoming more and more clear-cut like there's less of a margin and that is further intensifying this process i think
So the solution is smash capitalism. Yeah, exactly. Build socialism. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think that's a pretty good note to end on. Thanks very much. No worries. Right, so that's it for this episode, folks. Um, I'm going to try and get another one out before Christmas. I'm not sure if I'll manage that, but at the very least, you'll hear the next episode on DDR the first Sunday of January. Slán Cáfóla.